may be seated. Good morning, church. If you're visiting for the first time, one of the great privileges here at Dawson is for three decades, for 30 years, Dawson has had the great privilege of worshiping in Spanish and in English. For 30 years, there's been a Hispanic congregation that has worshiped simultaneous to uh, English speakers here in the sanctuary, and this morning is a time of gathering together of those two congregations and the vibrancy of the Hispanic work that has been done for 25 years by Pastor Byron. Many of you know Pastor Byron, love Pastor Byron. We welcome all of the Hispanic congregation that is here with us today. You, you bless us with your presence here this morning. You do. Pastor Byron is coming now, and he's going to share a little bit of his testimony. We'll hear him gladly now. Thank you, Pastor Byron. I think this is the first time for Dawson worshiping in tongues. Are you okay? Uh, <laughs> this is good, by the way. <laughs> Buenos dias. Good morning. This morning, I would like to share my testimony with you. I was born in a small town in the northern Ecuador into a very traditional Catholic family. I was one of the ten children. I had a very happy childhood, but it had many limitations. My entire childhood, I walked barefoot. I went to an elementary school where there were only two teachers two classrooms and four grades. Every day, early in the morning before going to school, my younger brother and I had to go milk the cows and fulfill other typical obligations in my house. Early in my childhood, I learned the meaning of tough love. When I was a teenager, I went to live with my sister who moved to the city far away from where I grew up. There. I had the opportunity to go to the high school. I went in the evenings because I had to work during the day. I work as an tailor. When I moved to the city, I was also be able to attend a church different than the one I went to back home. In this church, someone gave me a Bible. I was the first time in my life that I had my own Bible. Very soon after that, I came to understand that I needed Christ in my life. One Sunday, after the pastor preached and made the invitation, I walked under the throne and I gave my life to Christ. Then I was baptized. This experience changed my life forever. Later, I went to college, and when the day of my graduation came, I invite my dad. He couldn't believe that I was graduating. He cried. I was the first of 10 siblings that graduated from college. Later on, I worked for the Ecuadorian government for 14 years. During this time, I was given a scholarship by the International Labor Organization to receive a training in Italy, Europe. Two years later, I went to Brasilia, Brazil, to follow up another training. For a long time, I struggled with something I felt in my heart 
God was calling me to the ministry, but they didn't know what to do. Finally, the time came, and the Lord touched my heart. I am resigned from my government job. For my friends, and even part of my family, what I was doing seems crazy. After resigning, I moved to and work in the local church as the minister of mission and youth pastor. Shortly after, the church asked me to be the interim pastor. These events led to Dawson inviting me to move to the United States to become the pastor of the Hispanic congregation. On Sunday, December 4, 1994, my family and I stood in this exact place and we became members of Dawson. I became the pastor of the Hispanic congregation. I began my responsibilities with many challenges and dreams. During this journey of 25 years, hundreds of people have come to know Christ and 250, 250 people, including the four ones who were baptized today. I was thinking 25 years, 250 people baptized, that means that we have been faithful with our 10%, you don't think? <laughs> About three years ago, God gave us the vision of planting a new Hispanic congregation in the North Jefferson County, and Dawson commissioned us to get it started. Today, we are blessed to have Joshua Del Risco as the pastor of Community of Faith. One of my recent experiences with Dawson was being a part of the chapel choir mission tour to Ecuador, my home country. I was able to preach after each concert the chapel choir performed. Many people accept Christ. One of them was the member of the Ambato City Council. I never thought that one day I was going to preach in a coliseum. I felt like the Ecuadorian Billigram. I, was, I want to finish by saying, if God used a barefoot boy who used to milk cows, I'm sure that God can use anyone. Serving God is a huge privilege. Serving God a dozen is a bonus. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Byron, for sharing with us, and what a tremendous encouragement you are to us this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 45, Genesis 45 through 50 this morning. For those of you that are visiting for the first time, we are walking through the book of Genesis together. We come to the final story in the book of Genesis that we're going to look at, starting in Genesis 45. If I remind you, two fall semesters ago, we were in Genesis Act 1, Genesis 1 through 11. Last fall, we walked through Genesis Act 2, the story of Abraham. This fall, over these past months, we've been looking at the story of Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, the story of Joseph. When I was 12 years old, I was playing basketball, and I went up for a rebound, and I got the rebound, and I came back, 
down and I pivoted to go back up for the score. And when I did that, I turned really quickly and my forehead hit the opponent, the defender's forehead, and he had a harder head than I did. And <laughs> the result was I was on my back and blood was profusely coming out of my forehead. Everyone uh, gathered me up, took me to the ER, and that was the first time I ever got stitches right there in my forehead. I was in the sixth grade, so it was in that middle school year where everybody's fairly insecure about themselves. I certainly was, and for me, that, that scar was like a target, that every time I walked into the school, I felt that everyone could see only that scar on my forehead. Every time I would uh, get ready in the morning, I would look into the mirror, and it was glaring at me. There was the scar. There was the scar. And for many times in my life, I felt like that scar sort of defined me, sort of confined me a little bit. But, you know, now, years later, decades later, I look into the mirror, and you know something? I don't even see that scar. It's still there. If you, if you look deeply enough, it's still there, but it's become a part of who I am. It's healed, and, and time has allowed it to not confine me nor define me. And in many ways, all of us in this room are going to experience scars, aren't we? We're going to experience scars. And at times, we can feel the temptation that those scars would define us or confine us. But the story of Joseph is the story that asks the question, what does God do with our scars? And the great news of Joseph's story is, is that our God redeems even our worst scars for his glory. Genesis chapter 45 is really the culmination of a story that has come before, starting in Genesis 37. We've looked at these previous chapters here, so I just remind you of the story. Uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers. Gave him a, a coat of many colors. He was the supervisor over all of his brothers, and his brothers, you can imagine, would resent that, right? They resented it so much, they betrayed Joseph, they threw him into a pit, they were going to leave him for dead, until one of the brothers named Judah said, I've got an idea, let's sell him into slavery, make some money, and go back and tell dad that our brother tragically died. So they covered up his death, sold him into slavery, and Joseph landed on two feet. He went from a pit to Potiphar's place, a, a place of a position that he had. He was entrusted by Potiphar with all of his household, and Joseph, the scripture tells us, was handsome. He was well-built, the scripture tells us, and so Potiphar's wife fell for him, desired to have him, so much so that she, she came to him, and Joseph said, if I was to have a relationship with you, I would be sinning against God and sinning against my boss. So he resisted the temptation fled from Potiphar's wife, and this is what God gave him because of his faithfulness. He ended up being falsely accused and thrown into prison. So if you're tracking, he's moved from a pit into Potiphar's place. Now he's in prison. God had given him a gift to be able to interpret dreams. And while he was in prison, there was a cupbearer and there was a baker, and he interpreted the dreams, and it didn't end well for the baker, and the cupbearer was able to go back to Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh, two years later, is having a dream. And no one in the palace could interpret his dream. And so the cupbearer overhears this and says, I remember back in prison, there was a guy by the name of Joseph 
who had this great gift to interpret dreams. And so Joseph was elevated from the prison to the palace. He was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, which was seven years. There would be wonderful plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And all of that ancient Near Eastern world would come to Egypt for what they had stored back. Pharaoh said, that's a wonderful dream. I need someone to be in charge of this. And so Joseph ends up being exalted to this secretary of agriculture. He has this wonderful position with Pharaoh in the palace. And would you know it? That the famine was so bad that it extended back to Canaan, back to his dad's home, back to where his brothers were living. And so his brothers come looking for food, and they come to the palace, and there is Joseph. Well, years have gone by, so they don't recognize Joseph. The last place that they could have imagined that Joseph would be is there in the palace. The last time they saw him was being sold into slavery after he had been in this pit. And so it was that Joseph had the opportunity. He, he could betray his brothers. He had the position to be able to say, kill them all. But what would come of God's promises to, to make of Abraham this great nation? And it's these, these 12 brothers that God is going to have, the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a, there is a challenge before us. What will Joseph do now that he has this position? Well, you know what he does? He tests his brothers. Years have gone by in Joseph's life, and he's changed the scars of life, the prison and the pit being sold falsely into slavery and then being falsely accused. It's changed Joseph. So he begins to see, have my brothers changed also? He accuses them of being spies. He sends them back to uh, his father's house and he says, there's another brother there. Bring him back. That brother's name was Benjamin. He kept one of the brothers named Simeon. He kept him as a hostage. You know why he did that? He wanted to test. Would they actually come back or would they, just like they did to Joseph, would they just leave Simeon for dead? They go back to Jacob. You could imagine. I mean, Jacob thinks that he has buried his son Joseph. He thinks that he'll never see Joseph again. So the last thing that this grieving dad wanted to do was send Benjamin, his youngest son, over there to this cruel person in Egypt who's treating them harshly. Well, famine is so bad. They're back so deeply into a corner that the father, Jacob, eventually relents and sends Benjamin with the other brothers, and they get there to the palace. And Joseph, he tricks them. He, he plants a silver cup with the youngest son, Benjamin, and he says, Aha! You tried to steal from me. I've got you. I've caught you red-handed. Benjamin should go to prison. And it's at that moment, the, the worst thing that they could have possibly imagined, that Benjamin would be imprisoned, is going to happen because Joseph has set him up. It's in that moment that the very person who sold Joseph into slavery stands up. His name is Judah. And he says, take me, not him. And it's in that moment that Joseph realizes that not only has he changed, but even his brothers have changed. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 45. We read what happens next. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers 
And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They think that they're going to die. So Joseph came near to his brothers. Come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. And you can imagine them saying, no, 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 no. We're going to keep our distance here. We're going to keep our distance. And then they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and yet there are five years in which they will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Then we go to verse 15. And he kissed all of his brothers. He wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And the rest of Genesis is Joseph being reunited with his father. The rest of Genesis are these 12 brothers and their families being moved to Egypt. The rest of Genesis is Jacob, Joseph's father, dying and his brothers becoming very nervous. They think to themselves, oh, we see what Joseph maybe is doing here. Maybe this whole thing has been a ruse. Maybe to make us feel comfortable, but now that our dad is dead, maybe now Joseph is going to enact revenge. Maybe he's got us exactly where he wants us to have, be. And it's in that moment that we turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they, they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The story of Joseph is a story of God's redemption of his scars. The story of Joseph is to see, in the end, how God utilized a prison, a pit, being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, the scars of the difficulty of all that he experienced, and how God, in the midst of his scars, redeemed them for this glorious truth that the, the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, will continue. The famine will not destroy them. Joseph's Desire for revenge will not end them. We see in this story that God has brought Joseph to this place where he realizes that even the evil that was done to him was a part of God's grand design for not only him, but his family. And it is a wonderful truth for you to hold on to this morning. 
as we think about all that we've learned from Genesis 37 through 50, it is this resounding truth that we can trust God even when evil strikes. Do you hear me? That we, as followers of Jesus, can trust God's sovereignty even when evil strikes. Well, Joseph didn't know. In, in real time, Joseph didn't know why all of this was happening. If you were to go back to when he was the privileged son and he was sold into slavery, you didn't know, Joseph didn't know why God was doing that. He didn't know why he was falsely accused. He didn't know why he was sold into, or why he was put into prison. But you know, at the end of the story, Joseph's able to look back and he sees, oh, I see it. I see how even evil and even betrayal and even the wounds that you have caused to me is a part of God's grand design. And so it is for you. You don't always know why God allows things to occur in your life, do you? So, sometimes you don't have the privilege of even what Joseph experiences here. Joseph, this side of heaven, is able to see how God is connecting the dots. And oftentimes in your life and in my life, we don't have that type of vision. But Joseph did. He could see it. And I'm here to say that what God's word tells us is this wonderful comfort that even when evil strikes in your life and in my life, we can trust that God is good. Do you, do you see it in the passages? In Genesis chapter 45, we see these two truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I want you to see it here. In verses 4 through 5 of Genesis 45, we see Joseph saying, I am your brother Joseph. You sold me into Egypt. They did it. That's human responsibility. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Human responsibility for God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see how there is in God's will two parallel tracks going to the same destination of God's glorious will, that human responsibility is on one track and God's sovereignty is on one track. And it seems to us that these contradict. Joseph, who did this? Did your brothers do it? Yes. Did God allow this to happen for his glory? Yes. God's sovereignty and human responsibility come into focus in the story of Joseph. In Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. You did this. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Why did God mean it for good? He did it to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This glorious truth in your life and in my life is summed up. I, I, I love in, in the Bible just to write in the margin of Genesis 45, in the margin of Genesis 50, in big letters, Romans 8, 28. The whole story of, of Joseph is an illustration of Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, some things, most things, a couple of things, the things that we choose. No, in all things, God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We see this so beautifully illustrated in the story of Joseph. We see this so beautifully illustrated even in the betrayal of his own son. That, that God would use the cruelest event 
in human history the death of his perfect son to be a point of redemption, the very source of our salvation, that people nailed him to a cruel, coarse Roman cross. But God could redeem that. He could transform that for his glory and for our salvation. And this is a powerful thing for us to be reminded of, that no situation, if he can redeem the cross, if he can redeem the scars of Joseph's life, that no situation no matter how surprising it is, no matter how wretched it is, no matter how disappointing it is, that nothing that happens to you takes God by surprise. God never wakes up in the morning and receives the the heavenly news report and says, whoa, what happened when I went to bed last night? There is nothing that comes in your life. There is nothing that comes in my life. There is nothing that occurs. Even those individuals who seek to harm us, they don't control us. Even when we're betrayed or disappointed or surprised or dismayed, even when life seems dark and when pain is real and when doubts press upon us and we feel alone and we don't even know where to turn, this is true. That even them, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else, anything else, including every one of the scars that are represented in this room, anything else and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're coming to the end of summer. Many of you this past summer went on trips, and maybe you went to Atlanta to Six Flags, maybe you went to Disney, maybe the fair is coming into town in the coming weeks, and so there are going to be many people that, that get on roller coasters or have gotten on roller coasters, and you pay, you pay a lot of money to sit on something that takes you really, really fast and really, really high to drop you really, really fast. Sometimes it spins you around. Sometimes you go upside down. Sometimes you're going at this breakneck pace and all of a sudden it turns you as quickly as it can and you feel like you're going to run off the tracks. You feel as if it is out of control, but the reason why you get on and the reason why you get on again and again and again and again is that you know that no matter how fast it goes, No matter how high it goes, no matter how many times it flips you upside down, no matter how quickly you turn in the tracks there, you know that there is a design to the ride. That someone has designed it in such a way that there is a destination, and that destination is your enjoyment. Sort of enjoyment, I guess. (laughs) And so it is. No matter how fast life is, no matter how out of control it feels, God is sovereignly good, even when you don't know why. Why he's allowed you to experience this, why this event has occurred in your life, even when evil strikes, God is in the business of the redemption of taking even broken things and making them whole again. Do you, you know this, right? Don't you? I think you do. 
I, I want you to hear this morning shared stories of God's redemption among us. The stories that are going to be shared are anonymous stories, but they're stories from our midst, stories from our congregation. They're not Patrick's stories. They're not uh, Jenny's stories today, but they're our stories. They're your stories of God's sovereign goodness, even in the midst of our wounds and our scars. Our marriage was broken beyond what we ever would have thought would be repaired. It all came to a head one Easter night with what was my worst nightmare come to life. But in the end, the impossible happened. We found a way to humble ourselves, putting that six-year marriage on the cross, offering up our individual lives, and asking God to unite us in marriage again, but this time with Christ in the middle. We have a completely different marriage, one that points to God's faithfulness instead of to us. There's not a day that I don't think about what God did that night. God redeemed my scars by saving our marriage. God exposed some of the secrets of my life. Honestly, I didn't want him to because I was too selfish and ashamed. But he cared enough to expose them so that I could see their ugliness more clearly. He gave me the courage to ask for help from other strong believers so those sins wouldn't have been secrets anymore. There was power in that and strength in being supported and prayed for. He's using my mistakes and my honesty to help others struggling with the guilt, shame, and stronghold of secret sins. God redeemed my scars when he brought secret sins of mine into the light. Because of the example of a strong Christian friend, God took my life from having two separate parts, one at church and one at school, and made them one. God redeemed my scars by giving me the courage to stop being a hypocrite. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was nine years old. And during a year of chemo and radiation, I carefully watched my mom's faithfulness, seeing her keep her focus on Christ. It was that faithfulness that opened my heart to the Holy Spirit. I became a Christian because of my mom's journey through breast cancer. God redeemed my scars by using my mom's example to lead me to salvation. My relationship with my parents was always one of favoritism, which they thought was a gift to me, but which created deep wounds in my relationship with my siblings. The facade of the perfect Christian family masked dissension, abuse, fear, and sadness. The scars of the past still have raw edges that sometimes hurt, but they do not defeat me like they once did. They remind me that God can create beauty even from the most broken life. God redeemed my scars when he heard me even before I could call out for help. My twin sister passed away from cancer in my very room. It took me a long time to accept that she had really died. But with the help of my special friends and the happy singers and my sweet grandmother, I know that I will see her again someday. God redeemed my scars when I realized it was not my time to see my heavenly father yet. God loved me through a crisis pregnancy. I was angry, I was broken, I was hurt. But God healed those wounds. He called my son, that son, to be a missionary. A short 36 years later, I'm still experiencing restoration. God redeemed my scars 
by restoring what I thought was lost. My son was an alcoholic. He once told me he took his first drink at age 14, a drink that led to a lifetime of heartache and struggle. The talent for school, medicine, radiology, and cardiology were overcome by his addiction, an illness that took his career, his marriage, and family from him. Over the course of a decade, I spent countless hours with him in the hospital and in rehab facilities, encouraging him and praying that he would be able to live without dependency on alcohol. And then when, seen, when things seemed to be repaired and fixed, he relapsed, a decision that caused his death. A mother's love for her son is very precious, and God's love for us is even more so. Even in the midst of the pain, fear, and guilt, I felt God's presence, strength, and guidance. And I rest in the assurance that comes from knowing that my son knew Jesus Christ as his Savior. God redeemed my scars through the cherished memories of the good times I spent with my son. Let us pray, church. Gracious God, we hear these stories Stories from within our own midst. Stories of true pain and hurt and anguish. And we celebrate that even in the midst of tears, even in the midst of wounds and scars, that you are gloriously good. And that there's no scar that we can experience that is beyond your redemptive reach. I pray for the person today whose story is not told, but it is felt so perceptibly in the very pew that they sit in today. They're wondering, is there hope for this roller coaster of a rod that they feel as if everything is out of control? May they rest in your sovereign control, even when they don't understand why. May they rest in the truth of your word that there's no situation no person, no event that is beyond the scope of what you desire to work together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So we look to you as followers of Jesus. We look to you when we don't know where to turn. We look to you when we can't understand why. We look to you for our hope, even in the midst of our scars. It's in your name we pray. The redemptive name of your son, Jesus. Amen.